Uh, Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10? We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 25. We are continuing in our series in Hebrews. Uh, We're in chapter 10, and I'd like to read for us these verses today that we'll be looking at, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds." Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Father, this is a passage that is just so packed with practical instruction. It's a word that your church needs to hear, not just when it was written, but today also, that we need to connect with one another. We need to be part of your church. We need to be growing in our relationship with you. And so, Father, as we walk through these truths this morning, would you just guide us, give us ears to hear, and make the application in our own life where we need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever wondered what it would be like to grow up as a child in the White House? One of the iconic photos that comes down to us from history in the White House is this picture of John F. Kennedy seated at his desk with his little son, John Jr., you know, poking his head out from under the resolute desk there in the Oval Office. And I know I'm sure all of you have seen this picture at some point, and it's just really kind of cute to think of little John growing up in the White House and kind of running around. And and, uh, for him, he was so young at the time that Uh, That's all he knew. I mean, the White House for him was home. And so he would be playing out in the yard in the White House, or he'd be running down the hallway into the arms of his dad, or he'd be poking his head out from under the desk in the Oval Office. I also think about this particular desk. If you're a fan of the National Treasure movies, you know know that one of them, the Resolute Desk, features prominently in that. I think this is why the board was missing. Uh, He was there and playing, figured it out where that little board was hidden in there and got that treasure map out, you know. No, I, I just look at that and it makes me smile when I see that. Because one of the privileges that he enjoyed was access to the White House in a way that you and I will never know because he was a child of the president. His dad was the president of the United States. And in this passage that we are going to look at this morning, the writer of Hebrews calls attention to two great privileges that we have. Two great privileges that sometimes we take for granted because we've grown up in a Christian family perhaps or grown up in the church or we've heard these things before and we kind of, you know, don't really stop and think of how amazing this privilege is for those of us who are children of God. And we've turned a corner in the book of Hebrews. 
In the first part of this particular book, he has been telling us a lot about doctrine, about the personal work of Christ, about all that he has done for us, but now he moves more and more into the application to life. And that is so important that we pick up on what he is saying here and put it into practice. Number one, he tells us that we have confidence to come before God's throne because of Jesus. That we have been given a divine access into the very presence of God. Now think about what he says there again in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, confidence, boldness to enter the most holy place. Now to a Jewish audience, when they heard that, I mean, their mind would immediately go to the temple in Jerusalem, which we believe was still there in existence at the time that this book was written. It had not yet been destroyed by the Romans. And so they're thinking of this earthly temple that was the place where God had chosen to dwell. The most holy place was that holy of holies inside the temple, behind the veil. It was shielded by this curtain. It was the place where no Israelite except the high priest would even dare to go and the high priest would only do that once a year when he would make an offering for the people's sin. That place was closed off from everyone by this thick curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place in the temple. And I can imagine them hearing these words and saying, how is it possible that we could ever think of entering into God's presence? You know, and and what's remarkable here is that he is not talking about this earthly temple ultimately that will be destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans, but he is talking about entering into the very presence of God himself in heaven, that most holy place. How is it possible that we could think of entering into God's presence? It is only by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's by the blood of the Lamb who has paid the penalty for our sins and dealt with that barrier of sin forever. And the writer of Scripture here calls it, we enter by a new and living way. It is new because we are now under the terms of the new covenant. The old covenant has been set aside. Jesus fulfilled those demands that were given there. And we are under this new covenant that the writer of Hebrews has talked about. It was prophesied in Jeremiah that the day was going to come when God would write his word on our heart, his law on our heart. He would give us his Holy Spirit who would come and indwell us. It would be that spirit who would teach us, who would take the things that Jesus said and apply them to our life and help us to understand and grow in our relationship with him. It is also called a living way because it is through Christ who lives forever. I mean, when Jesus said to the disciples in John 14, 6, that I am the way and the truth and the life, No one comes to the Father except through me. He was making a very exclusive claim. I mean, sometimes people look at Christianity and they don't like that. They don't like that Christians will say that Jesus is the only way to the Father. But it's not us who said that. It is Jesus himself who made that statement. And either that statement is true, and he is the only way, or it's false, and he was a liar and a deceiver. 
But we know from putting our faith in him that his word is true and that he is the one who has opened up this way for us to come before the Father in heaven. And it was opened us for us, he tells us, through the curtain that is his body. He's using the word there, curtain, as a metaphor for what took place when Jesus died on the cross. But he is also picking up on an historical event that took place in the city of Jerusalem on that day when Jesus was crucified. When Jesus hung on that cross and he cried out, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit to his Father in heaven. Matthew tells us this. He said, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection and they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. I mean, can you imagine what that was like? And it's interesting how we have no record of anyone trying to refute that and say that those things did not take place. You know, the focus is on the resurrection of Jesus and wanting the Roman guards to say that the disciples came and stole the body or something like that. But here was this amazing event that took place in the temple and in the city of Jerusalem. The curtain that shielded and separated the most holy place from the holy place in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Who did that? God did that. And why did he do that? Because this barrier of man's sin had now been dealt with forever. And that we could come into the very presence of God if we would put our faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. A divine access into the very presence of God. And secondly, we have a divine advocate who represents us before the throne of God. This divine advocate here, he calls our great priest. At other places in Hebrew, he has been called our great high priest. It's the same thing that he is talking about. He is the one who represents us before the Father in heaven. And he is over the whole house of God. He's the one who has been given authority in that whole spiritual realm. When you look at other scriptures in the New Testament, what is said about Jesus, you'll find the Apostle Paul will say of him that he is the head of the body, which is his church. Jesus himself will say to the disciples after the resurrection that he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. There is no one more powerful. There is no one greater than Jesus. In the book of Revelation, we see that the title he has been given is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you've heard me say before that when you have that expression written in that way, that's the Hebrew way of expressing a superlative. He is the, the greatest of kings or he's the best of lords. There's no one greater. There's no one more powerful. He's the top. Meaning that there is no one like Jesus at all. And this Jesus is the one who is our advocate in heaven. He's our defense attorney. 
He's the one who intercedes on our behalf before the Father. He's the one who invites us to come into his presence, to come before his throne with our requests at any time. I mean, this passage here in chapter 10 goes back to what he said in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 about Jesus who invites us to come before his throne of grace, who is this merciful and sympathetic high priest that we have. And so it brackets this whole section when he's been talking about Jesus. And why is that so significant? Because if you have placed your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you are his child. And he is the one who stands in your place before the Father in heaven. I think back on that picture of John Jr. playing in the White House. He was able to do that because he was the son of the president. And you and I have been given access to God's presence in heaven because we are a child, a son, or daughter of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Isn't that amazing? Let that sink in. I I like how uh, Pastor Tim Keller said it. He made this statement. He said that the only one who dares to wake a king at 2 a.m. and ask for a glass of water is a child. I mean, that's what it's like when you think of Jesus who says, you can come before my throne of grace at any time to bring your request before the Father in heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. We have that kind of access. So, Based on that, since these things are true, then the writer of Hebrews, who just, he's a pastor at heart, he's going for the application now, he's saying because this is true, now let's use that. Let's live differently because of all that we have been given. Because of Jesus, we have confidence to live as saints in this world. In verses 22 to 25, he shows us what that means. If we are going to walk in victory, there are three things that we must do. In the NIV translation, uh, it uses the word let us to highlight each of these instructions that are there. Five times it will use the word let us, but actually there's three main commands here. The last two times when the words let us are used, those are actually in Greek participles that modify the third instruction that is given to us. Now maybe that's a little bit more than you wanted to know, but that's why we're looking at three clear instructions that are given to us. The first is this, that he says in verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near to God. Each of those statements of how we do that are significant. When he says we're to do that with sincerity, the word sincere meant to be genuine, to be honest, to come before God honestly in your heart. There's no false pretense. God knows everything that's going on in your life, so there's no point in trying to hide it, to be honest about our sin, to admit that to God. And we come before him in that genuine way as his child. We come in full assurance of faith. 
We are confident in Christ and what he has done for us, and we are confident in our position before him that we can come, that we have been given this access. We come having our hearts sprinkled. And he talks about having our conscience cleansed even. Again, we've looked at how the old covenant could not deal with the internal. It dealt with the problem of man's sin, but in this temporary provisional way and what he is saying about the new covenant is that when we confess our sins they are taken away and they are forgiven and it is possible for us even to have our conscience clean before God I think about Paul in the book of Acts when he was giving testimony in chapter 23 and he's brought before kings and others in authority. He can make this statement that I have lived my life with a perfectly clear conscience up until now. Now, that's amazing. I go, you know, I look at Paul, who was the one who was oppressing the church, who was rounding up Christians, who was saying that they should be put to death even, or beaten or scourged. He was the one who stood there at the stoning of Stephen as that first martyr, and he could make this statement that I have lived my life with a perfectly good or clear conscience up until now. He could only say that because he had been forgiven by Christ. And his sins have been washed away by his blood. We can have that too. Our hearts clean. And when he makes the reference to having our bodies washed, I believe that's a reference to baptism. When he talks about uh, having uh, this physical body washed, Uh, In the New Testament, when they thought about being a Christian, I mean, they did not know of of an unbaptized Christian. You believed and you were baptized. Those two things they talked about as synonymous in the Scripture. And so here, with all of these things that have happened in their life, he's saying we are to draw near to God. Now, he's not saying you need to be baptized before God's going to hear your prayer. I don't believe that is what he is saying there, but he is talking about all of these things as true of us when we know Christ and we've come into a relationship with him and we have publicly declared that to others we can come with full assurance of faith in fact the great privilege and responsibility we have is to know God Jesus will say in John 17 3 that this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That should be the great aim of our life, to know God better, to know him deeper, to delight in fellowship with him, and to know his son, Jesus Christ. The Puritans called this communion with God. J.I. Packer has done a lot of work in his life studying the Puritans, And he made this statement about them. He said, The Puritans differ from evangelicals today because with them, communion with God was a great thing. To evangelicals today, it is a comparatively small thing. The Puritans were concerned about communion with God in a way that we are not. The measure of our unconcern is the little that we say about it. When Christians meet, they talk to each other about their Christian work, their Christian interests, their Christian acquaintances, the state of the churches, the problems of theology, but rarely of their daily experience of God. 
Now think about your own conversations in your own life. When you meet someone and you ask about them, I mean, to the Puritans, one of the first questions that they would have asked is, how's your soul? How are you doing today in your relationship with God? How's your heart? How's your relationship with him? You know, we, we do those things that he said. I mean, we talk about our work, or we may talk about what God's doing here or there, or we may share some activities that we're involved in or things like that. But what's the state of your soul? And what's it like in your relationship with God? That's a very important question to ask. And John Owen he was one of the Puritans, according to Packer, uh, when he looks at these men, and I would agree with this, you know, he called the Puritans the redwoods of the forest. They stood the tallest, but John Owen was the tallest of them all. And John Owen said this about his relationship with God. He was very intentional about having communion with God. And he said, friendship is best or friendship is most maintained and kept up by visits. And these, the more free and less occasioned by urgent business. In other words, in the midst of all his academic, political, ecclesiastical labors, he made many visits to God. And you catch what he's saying there? He's saying that if the only time that we come before God to pray is a mealtime, or a time when we're desperate, or a time when we need something, that's not really entering into fellowship with God. He's talking about making those visits where you slow down, and you're reading the Scripture, and you're thinking about what it says. It'd be taking something like what we are looking at today in this passage and thinking about that access that we have been given and how marvelous that is. And praying that back to God and talking to Him and saying, God, I can hardly believe what you have done for us in Jesus. And Jesus, I stand in awe of the sacrifice that you have made for me. And you meditate on that, and you think about that, and think about the honor and the privilege, and then you start talking and you think about yourself and you go, am I making the most of that? Do I make time for God every day where I sit down and I dwell in delight in his presence? One of the greatest achievements in Owen's life was his seven-volume commentary on Hebrews. And when he finished it near the end of his life, he said this. He said, now my work is done. It is time for me to die. Prayer and constant, careful meditation on the Word of God were the means that John Owen used to draw near to God. You know, every time I read and I think about his example, I think to myself, that is really good. I need that too. How's your communion? How's your fellowship with God the Father? Do you talk with him often? Do you think deeply about his word? Do you delight in your fellowship and friendship with him? <clears throat> there is strength when we do. And secondly, this word from Hebrews says, let us hold on to the hope we profess. And he states it in this way. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Not wavering, 
Not wrestling with doubts or questions, but being assured if you have questions, if you have doubts, seeking those answers, coming before God, digging into his word. And he tells us we are to hold on without wavering because God is faithful. I mean, he wants us to be like Abraham, who at the end of his life, you know, or excuse me, earlier in his life, I should say, when he had walked with God, but here he is, he's 75, he's given this promise that God's going to bless him and give him descendants and children, and he comes to the age of 100, and it still hasn't happened yet. What is Abraham doing? He's not wavering in doubt, but he has come to the point where he is fully assured in faith that what God has promised he will do. Even to the point when later he is called to sacrifice his own son, he was willing to do that because he believed that God could raise the dead. The writer of Hebrews wants us to be like an Abraham, to be sure and strong and growing in our relationship with him. Hold on to hope and do that with strength and conviction because God is faithful and he keeps his promises. So what if we do struggle with doubt? How do we deal with that? We dig into God's word. It's a, uh, it's a way that God can motivate us to know him better. It's not wrong to have questions or to have doubts from time to time, but God wants us to come to him and seek those answers. And as we do, as we exercise our faith, it will grow. And as we see God as faithful and keeps his promises over and over again, we can trust him for even greater things in our life. But let me give you an example of God's faithfulness in this. Donald Carson shared this story, and he said, imagine that you were living at the time of the Exodus in the Old Testament, and you're listening in on this conversation between two, two Jewish men, and he goes, we'll give them good Jewish names like Smith and Brown, okay? And uh, there's humor there, it's okay to laugh, you know? <laughs> And so he says, can you imagine these two guys, you know, talking to each other, and one of them says to the other, did you hear what's going to happen tonight? You mean about the destroying angel and about the death of the firstborn? Yeah, I did. And I'm a little worried about that. Well, what do you mean? Well, there's been a lot of strange things going on around here lately. I mean, the hail, the plagues that have come, the boils, the bugs, all of those things, and now the death of every firstborn in Egypt. I'm a little worried. And the other guy says to him, he goes, not me. I go, bring it on. I mean, let's see this. Let's see God work. And the other guy says, well, that's easy for you to say. You have three sons. I only have one son. Well, you have put the blood on the doorpost, haven't you? Yeah, I've done that. I'm not, I'm not a fool. But I can't wait for this night to pass. Now, when the destroying angel comes... Whose son is going to be spared? Both of them will. Both of them will because it's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It is the blood of Christ that saves us. And if they were obedient and they put their trust in the blood of the Lamb to cover their sins, they would be saved. But which person would you rather be? I mean, wouldn't we all want to be stronger in our faith, in our conviction, holding on to God in those times? And I'll tell you, when I think about that example, it encourages me in this way, but it also is a very strong motivation 
to keep growing in our relationship with him. It encourages me when I think about people who have come to the point of death, they have placed their trust in Christ, they would say, but maybe they've not grown as they should or been as diligent as they should have. And I've talked to people before they have died, and I've talked to believers in our church who were so strong in their faith. They were ready to go. They were ready to be with Jesus. And you could hear it in their voice, and you knew the promises that they were holding on to. And I've talked to other Christians who have come to that point that said, you know, I made a commitment to Christ back here, or I prayed, and they sort of were connected, involved, and I believe that they sincerely had made a commitment when they described what they did, but they didn't really grow in their faith, and I, I know of people that said, Pastor, would you read, read some scripture to me, and they want to hear the word, they want to hear the promises so that they have something to hold on to, but they haven't really grown themselves to know that deeply in their heart. And they come to that point of death and they're wrestling with doubt still. God doesn't want us to be there. God wants us to be assured in our faith that God is our rock and you can trust him. I love this passage in Isaiah 26. It says, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. That's our hope. That's where we stand. And then thirdly, he gives us this important word, that we are to stay connected to the body of Christ, the church. And here's where he gives three instructions that are all related to that one uh, command, where he says, let us consider, and then there are these three things that we are to consider. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And that word spur, that's a strong word. It means to provoke. Let us consider how we can provoke, or you can think of it as a cowboy on horseback when he's digging those spurs into the horse and saying, let's go. You know, it's like we as Christians should be thinking of ways that we can provoke one another to good deeds, to love more to take those steps of faith, to be obedient, to, to fire one another up in our relationship with God. It's an amazing instruction. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And he's thinking about what's going on in the church and he's thinking about this initial wave of persecution and what's happened in Rome and Christians being kicked out of the city or not having the protection of the government. And some were falling away and dropping out. I don't know if I want to be in this group. Maybe I'll just do this on my own. And the word, let us not give up meeting together, can also be translated in this way. Don't abandon one another. I mean, think about that. Think about that if a wave of persecution were going on here and all your friends left. What are you saying, don't? abandon don't forsake one another it is a temptation in times of persecution to not want to identify with your brothers and sisters in christ but you know what i think it's also a a temptation in times of affluence 
that sometimes people can get so comfortable with life and the things that they have to do and they can get distracted by other things that they miss seeing how important it is that we are connected to one another. And I think Satan just loves it. I mean, it's like a wolf. If he can find a sheep that's away from the flock, you know, that's pretty easy pickings. I mean, it just, you know, knock them off one at a time like that. And I think Satan loves it if we isolate ourselves. In fact, I was reading recently in a book on church membership that if a person goes to church and within five years they are not making friends and they are not connected in a small group or an ABF or something like that beyond Sunday morning, there's about an 80 to 90% chance you won't be here in five years. That if you do not connect with others beyond Sunday morning and get involved in those small groups or ABFs or in serving in five years, you'll probably drift away and be somewhere else. We need one another. There is a relational dimension to the Christian life that we cannot ignore. You can have faith as an individual, if you will. You can, you can and need to make that personal commitment to Christ. You can have hope as an individual, and we need to have that. You need to hold on to Christ and that faith that you have. But you cannot love as an individual. You cannot carry out all the one another commands in Scripture, and there's over 60 of them in the New Testament. You cannot carry those out without being part of a local fellowship. We need one another. There is strength when we meet together with other believers. There's power in corporate worship. There's encouragement that comes from godly fellowship. There is instruction that comes when we hear God's word taught. There is love that we share when we come alongside of one another and we pray for one another. All those things are essential for us to stay strong in our faith. I was reading this testimony from Condoleezza Rice. When she was the National Security Advisor, in 2002, she made this statement. She said she was talking about why she had come back to church. And she was now attending the National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. while she was working there with our government. And she said, although I never doubted the existence of God, I think like all people, I've had some ups and downs in my faith. When I first moved to California in 1981 to join the faculty at Stanford, there were a lot of years when I was not attending church regularly. I was a specialist in international politics, so I was always traveling abroad. And one Sunday morning, I went to Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in Palo Alto. The minister that Sunday morning gave a sermon I will never quite forget. It was about the prodigal son from the viewpoint of the elder son. And it set the elder son up, not as somebody who had done all the right things, but as somebody who had become so self-satisfied. A parable about self-satisfaction and content and complacent in his faith. And he talked about how people who are like that somehow maybe don't expect themselves to need to be born again. And they can be kind of casual about their faith. And I started to think of myself as that elder son who had never doubted the existence of God but wasn't really walking in faith in an active way anymore. And she said, that was a turning point in my life. 
that that word brought conviction and I became more active with the church. I got into a Bible study. I started to have a more active prayer life. She got involved in the ministry of the church. That's a good word. It's time for us to put our faith into action. We have been given this divine access to God the Father. We have a divine advocate who is there in Jesus Christ. And what the writer of Scripture is is saying, so use it. Let us draw near to God. Make that the aim of our life. Take that time to have communion and fellowship with God and make sure that our heart is right with Him. Hold on to Christ. Grow in faith. Deal with doubts or questions that you have and come before Him in the Word of God and go deep and then stay connected to His body. Look for those ways to join with other brothers and sisters in Christ in fellowship, in the study of the Word, in service and ministry together. We need it. Let's pray. Father, as we think about applying this in our own life, the answers may be different. Each of us may have a different area in which we need to focus. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you take what was said this morning and use that in our life. And would you just shine your light in that area where we need some work and we need to take some steps of obedience. And Father, we know that it's for our very best. And I pray that for some who may be listening today, maybe it's here at the service or maybe it's listening online, Lord, I pray that today might be a turning point for them just like it was for Condoleezza Rice. God, do a work in us. Help us to grow strong in our faith so that when that day comes, when we stand before you, we will not be a stranger, but we will delight in the fellowship that we have had with you throughout our life. In Jesus' name, amen.